Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. So we are in the final week of this uh, Fail Forward series. Next week we have a Father's Day message, and then we'll go forward from there. Um, it's interesting. I've kind of uh, I enjoy, I wouldn't say studying culture, but listening to other people who have studied culture teach about it. And we live in an age where there's this real skepticism of, establishment, right? There's this anti-establishment establishment mentality, um, especially in the uh, younger millennials and Gen Z, right? But as an elder millennial, I feel a sense of it in myself as well. There's this sense, there's a genuine distrust of systems, government, religion, and there's, you see this in the way that people view things like government and like the church. There's a sense of if it's an organization, if there are people in power, we can't trust it. And I don't know where this comes from, um, that there's a sense of the way media portrays these things and the speed at which news can get out. Um, a lot of this is antidotal, though. I don't know where it comes from, but there's this, there's this sense that you people don't trust these organizations. Now, I'm not in government, so I can't speak to that. But I am a pastor and I am in the church world and I see it. I see it and I kind of understand it. There has been a history that is well known and documented and talked about where the church has failed. And I think media pushes that. Media wants people to know where, how the church has failed. And that has led to this distrust. There's many times where I've had conversations I've had conversations about my faith, and it always goes to, well, like, if, they, if churches follow Jesus, why are they this mean or this hateful? Or there's things like violence, things like the Crusades, things where the church has genuinely fallen short. And what I've learned is one of the first things I have to do is apologize, even though I wasn't the one committing those things, apologize on behalf of the hurt that church has caused. Many of us know church hurt. And many people in our world and in our culture and our neighbors have experienced that. And it's hard 
for the gospel to reach those people when they have this wall up because the church has hurt them. So a lot of times we have to lead with that. In his book, Blue Like Jazz, I read this in college, but Donald Miller tells the story about when he was in college, he and his friends set up a confessional booth on their campus. It was a, a liberal university. They set up this, this confession booth. And when people would come in to confess their sins, Miller would actually stop them and would instead confess the sins of the church to them, apologizing for the pain that the church had caused throughout history. It's mistreatment of homosexuals and women, burning people at the stake, crusades and slavery, so on and so forth. And he would apologize for those things and it began to build bridges. And people learned that even though the church might have done those things, those things do not represent the God that the church serves. Donald Miller realized that the church has publicly done the opposite of what they were called to do. And there are many times, look, there are times where the Bible teaches things that go against the grain of culture. And as Christians, we have to stand with scripture. We have to be bold, but that does not mean that we should mistreat people who disagree with us. It does not mean that we should lead with hate, violence, or even neglect. Donald Miller knew this and he sought to build a bridge through repentance and apology. And where he starts, I think we should start. And that is repentance. Now, not just for the church at large, okay, that is true, but in our own lives. In the same way that the corporate church may have failed and needs to repent and has repented, we as individuals, when we fail, when we fall short, The way forward is not through denial. It's not through defensiveness. The way forward is through repentance. We fail forward through that means. And this is not necessarily a fun word, right? I guess it's appropriate that it's gloomy and rainy because repentance is hard work. It's difficult. It means facing the the, uh, consequences of our actions. It means owning up to where we have fallen short. It means being responsible for what we have done. Calling a repentance is a difficult thing to do, but is the only way forward. In this series, we've talked about how we must serve the right master and not be slaves to sin. We've talked about how we can walk in God's unlimited grace. We've talked about how we have a new identity in Jesus. But all of those things happen. We walk in all those things because we first repent. We have to realize that the way that we walk in the new identity, the way we walk in success, the way we walk away from failure and fail forward is through repentance. And repentance is so difficult. We've highlighted over this series through multiple messages that that failure brings this great sorrow, that it's this, this pain that we experience, and that's the way it is. And as humans, we fail. So to be human means to experience the sorrow of as that is a result of our failure. But there's a significance in what kind of sorrow we feel. Our scripture for today comes from 2 Corinthians. This is verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. When, we, when failure happens, we feel the weight. We feel the pain. We feel the ache of that sorrow. But the kind of sorrow that we walk in will determine our future. We see this. There's a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. And we can see this play out in two uh, people in scripture. 
You see both of the failures happen in Luke 22. Uh, The first one is Peter, right? We know Peter's story. We know how he failed miserably, right? He betrayed the one he followed. He betrayed Jesus. He betrayed his beloved. He denied him three times. We see Peter, he's, they're, they're with, he's bold and he's brave and he's brash. He's with Jesus. When, when Judas and the crowd come to approach Jesus to arrest him and Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off the ear of a guard, he's like, you are not taking my Savior. You are not taking the Messiah. He's got this boldness about him. There's a point where him and Jesus are talking and Jesus tells them that he's going to deny, deny him. And Peter's like, no, it's not happening. And Jesus is like, no, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me, right? It's going to happen. You're, it's gonna, and Peter's, Peter's bold. He's, it's not going to happen. He's brash. He's confident. So often when we, we, when we, right before we walk into failure is when we are the most proud. We think we're the strongest. We think we can handle it. And Peter's in this situation. Then what happens? They take Jesus. The disciples scatter. There's this fear. There's this anxiety. They don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to kill Jesus? Is he going to escape? Is he really the Messiah? If he's the Messiah, is he going to die? I thought he was going to lead us into this victory. There's all these emotions and thoughts going around. And you can see it. The, the, the picture's almost like Peter is sitting around the fire and he's having these thoughts. He's kind of off in his own little world. And then the servant girl approaches him. She says, hey, hey, aren't you, aren't you friends with that Jesus guy? And his response, woman, I don't know him. Moments later, somebody else approaches him and says, oh, you follow Jesus. You're one of those people. You're one of his, his students. His response, man, I am not. And then yet again, somebody approaches Peter Certainly this fellow was with him for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And then Peter hears the rooster and he feels that sorrow. Verse 61 says, then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Peter felt the weight of his brokenness. 62 says he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was utterly broken. The other person we see feel that sorrow is Judas. Judas, just like Peter, betrayed Jesus. And this one, in fact, it's interesting. You can go and you can read. And Judas was actually the one that initiated the conversation. It's almost like he had this sense. He knew he was gifted in finances. He knew he was good with money. He had used that gifting, that ministry, to help fund Jesus' ministry. And now he has the opportunity where he can he can make himself some money. He knows that that the Pharisees want to arrest Jesus, but if they arrest him in public, it can cause an uproar and a riot, and it would be a big mess. So they can't arrest him when he's with a group of people. But then when Jesus goes off by himself, he's hiding and they don't know where he's at. And the Pharisees need a way to arrest Jesus. And Jesus is like, man, I'm on the inside. I know where Jesus is going to be. I can, be the, I can show them. And, Jesus, and Peter, or Judas sees this opportunity. <clears throat> and, and then in verses 4 and 6, it says, And Jesus, Judas <laughs> went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money and he consented and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Skip down to 47. It says, while he was still speaking, this is Jesus, while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd approached him and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12 was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him and Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the son of man? with a kiss. 
We know these stories. And we know the sorrow that both people felt. Judas's story, you can read that read it both in Acts and in Matthew. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5 says this. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. We see the sorrow. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Now, whenever this scripture is brought up, it's always get the questions about if somebody commits suicide, does that mean they're going to hell or they're going, is that like the worst sin you could commit? And so I don't want it to be a distraction. So I want to address it. This is not a message about that, but committing suicide does not mean you're going to hell. There are many reasons it's complicated. There, there can be times where people have mental disorders where they get to that place. And just like being sick with cancer, they could be sick with, in their brain, things they can't help. So I want to address that, that that's not the worst sin. That's not the sin that condemns you to hell, okay? So, so don't let that distract you. This isn't a message about that. This is a message about how we handle the sorrow of failure. Judas tried to fix his mistake, right? He, he felt that regret. Just like Peter, Peter was broken and wet wet bitterly. Judas was like, oh, I can make amends. I'll take the silver back. I'll give it back and make up for what I did, right? And so I'm going to fix my own mistake. Judas went, there's too many names in this message. Judas went and he tried to make penance for his sin, not repentance. He tried to pay the price himself. We do this so often when we fail. We fall short and we think, man, we, we, we did it again. We, we committed that sin that we've been struggling with. We said we were going to stop and then we commit that sin. So you know what? We wake up the next morning and we're, we got that drive in us. We're ready to fix it. I'm not going to do this anymore. You know what? I'm going to read my Bible for 10 extra minutes or I'm going to spend a little more time in prayer. Or, or you know what? Instead of listening to the radio, I'm going to listen to worship music on my way to work. We do these things where we try to fix, the, where we fix our mistake. We knew we fell short. We knew we failed. We knew we sinned. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to get over that guilt. We're going to get over that remorse. We're going to get over that that despair by being a better person. We we try to take it into our own hands. There is a huge difference between remorse and repentance. And we see that in Judas's actions. Remorse may admit a wrongness. It may admit that what we have done is incorrect or it's a falling short or a failure, but it does not necessarily imply any kind of change in heart attitude, or lifestyle. But repentance involves a change. It's a change in the way we think, in the way we act, and it results in a change in lifestyle. Judas went and tried to fix the situation himself. And when he realized he couldn't, he was driven into despair and dismay, and he ended it all. He didn't return to his community He didn't change. He didn't hear the words of forgiveness and grace that Jesus had been teaching while he was walking with Judas. He gave up and he took his own life. When we compare that to Peter's sorrow, we see a different story. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. He was broken. He didn't try to make amends. He didn't try to fix anything. He went back to his community. We even see that that while he's feeling that godly sorrow, he's back in his community 
And then there's a point where the women, they go and they see that Jesus is risen and they have a message from Jesus. To the, they go back to the disciples and they tell them this message, but then they're also given a specific message just for Peter. We see this point, and then we also see where, where there's later on where Jesus actually reinstates Peter, where, where Peter had denied him three times. Jesus asked him to feed his sheep three times, and there's this picture, this moment of where Peter, instead of taking it on his own hands, trying to fix his own situation, he realizes that he is broken. He realizes that there's nothing that he can do. It's only the Messiah. It's only God of the, of the world that can save him, and that godly sorrow leads to him being restored, leads to him being reinstated, and it leads to him being a changed man. We see it in, in Pentecost, right? Peter, after Pentecost, when the whole, we're gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but we see that he, he preaches a message with the boldness of Jesus, with the boldness of the Spirit about Jesus. He goes on to do ministry. He goes on to spread the gospel of Jesus. No longer is he ashamed of Jesus' name. The Christian tradition teaches us that he was actually hung on the cross upside down. He was led on to not only die, but to be tortured because of his affiliation with Jesus. He was changed by that godly sorrow. He was, it was, drove him to repentance. Judas and Peter both had sorrow over what they had done, but there was a big difference in the nature of their sorrow. Judas had sorrow that led only to regret and eventual despair. Peter had sorrow that went beyond regret all the way to a changed life. And when we compare these two, we can see the differences in sorrow that is mentioned in 2 Corinthians. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. Leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's what godly sorrow does. The salvation aspect, this is that saving grace that we talk about. This This is all done by the Spirit in us. When we have godly sorrow, when we feel the weight of our sin, we realize that in godly sorrow, that grace opens our eyes to the fact that we cannot fix our own failure. Godly sorrow allows us to see sin for what it is, a failure to hold God as supreme. But it doesn't leave us at that rock bottom spot. Godly sorrow comes by the grace of God to allow us to see that sin has done its best and it has failed. Sin does everything it can to keep us down, but it cannot win. It is fighting a losing battle because we have a redeemer. It's not me. I can't redeem myself. It is Jesus. He is my redeemer. He is the one that fixes it. God himself covers our failure. Listen, this is the beauty of the gospel. God comes, God of the cosmos put on flesh and blood. He didn't just come and dwell among his creation. He came as his creation. And just like with with us, sin did its best to destroy him. Sin did its best to end him, but Jesus succeeded. Failure did not happen. Hebrews 4, 15 says that we we do not serve a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. I love the way Derwin Derwin Gray puts it. Sin tried its best. Sin did its best, but its best was not good enough. 
The devil tempted him, but his temptations were too weak. Sin and death and the dark powers fought a fight they could not win. King Jesus is alive. He is ruling and he is reigning at the Father's right hand. The new creation has been launched. All hail King Jesus. You have failure in your life. You feel the weight and the aches of that failure, but in godly sorrow, you can realize that that weight has been lifted. The pain has been felt. The sorrow has been changed to joy. The price has been paid by Jesus and you can have salvation in him. Godly sorrow leads to salvation. That is a saving grace that each of us have been, have been given. But it goes beyond saving grace. Because while it says it leads to salvation, it also leaves no regret. The second phrase is pointing not to saving grace, but to sanctifying grace. When it leaves no regret, it gives us, that means we have the power to change. We have the power for holiness. We have the power to have Christ-like character, power to change. We see this, like I was saying, in Peter's life. He failed miserably, afraid to be associated with Jesus. But then after Pentecost, he is a changed man, changed man, boldly proclaiming Jesus. And there's a key event that happens there. In Acts 1 verse 5, Jesus says that for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When we walk in Christ, we not only have the power to change, but we receive his spirit and we can be baptized in his spirit, which gives us the power to change. The Christian life is a supernatural life and God gives us his spirit to, in order to live that supernatural life. Now, when you're saved, there's a lot of confusion. There can be confusion here. When you are saved, when, you're, when you lean into that saving grace that we were talking about, you receive the Holy Spirit. Every believer is sealed by the Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also talks about being baptized or being filled. So there's a difference between the Holy Spirit being in you, right? He has residency in your life. But Paul talks about uh, being overcome and influenced by the Holy Spirit. By, by the, you move from residency to presidency, as one pastor says. Now the Holy Spirit reigns in your life and has power to fill you. He, Paul uses the, uh, an illustration, which I want to borrow here, in, in verse 18 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In fact, we go back to Pentecost, where they are baptized with the Spirit, and they accuse them of being drunk. And Peter's like, whoa, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk, okay? Like, I, don't, I, I know you might be there, but we're not, okay? 9 o'clock, so, so there's this picture all throughout Scripture. There's this metaphor that's given between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. And I get there's some kind of awkwardness with that, right? Because if, if we think about somebody who has had too much alcohol, right, we would say that this person, you don't have to write this down in notes if you're taking notes, okay? If you drink too much alcohol, you get drunk, right? You're inebriated. I think we know that part. They become impaired. Uh, sometimes we refer to them as being under the influence, right? If you have had too much to drink and you get behind the wheel, an officer pulls you over, he's going to ask you to, to do a few things to figure out what's influencing your actions, right? <laughs> you can, please walk the white line. Can you say your alphabet backwards? I can't do that sober, so I don't know. But okay, can you, can you touch your nose with your finger? There's these things where the officer is trying to point out, he's trying to figure out if the person is under the influence or if their judgment has been impaired. Their actions 
are not themselves. Their ability to act and react have been affected by something other than their own mind. Do you see what Paul is getting at? In the same way that a person who is under the influence of alcohol, therefore their actions have been influenced. In the same way a believer has the opportunity to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore our actions are influenced by God himself. This means that even though you may have failed before, it doesn't mean that you will fail in the same way again. It doesn't mean that sin is your ruler. Sin no longer reigns in your life. Yes, you fall short. Yes, we fail, but we can fail forward because we know that sin is not our ultimate controller. Our life completely surrendered to God and the Holy Spirit gives us the power to act as if God were influencing our actions. Because he is. This means that even though that relationship sorrow, it's not remorse, it's not despair. Biblically broken, biblical brokenness is surrender and it is repentance. When we fail, when you fail, we can't just wallow in it. We can't wallow in that dismay. We can't stagger through defeat, dragging it like a chain around our ankle. When we fail, we have to acknowledge it. We confess it. We admit it. We feel it. And we repent of it. We surrender it. And when we do that, we realize that our godly sorrow won't drive us to despair. It will drive us to Christ. And in him, we have a salvation that only, not only takes us from death to life, we have a salvation that gives us the power to change. We can fail forward because we have a godly sorrow in that failure that drives us to Christ. And in that we can have salvation and it leaves no regret. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave it all for us. We thank you that even though we feel the weight of our sin and we can feel the weight of our failure, that that doesn't define us that we can allow that to drive us to you. I pray that you would continue to to allow us to live out of that redeeming grace, Lord, that we can be a people marked by the fact that our failures don't define us, but we're we're defined by our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.